One, two, one, two. Oh, nice. Okay. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Hi, how's it going? My name is Austin Smith, and thank you for joining us on episode three of Bible Unbound. Today, we're going to do some interpretive exploration, our first actual interpreting verses, our first actual interpretation of real live verses in the Bible so that it can give you guys a sense, an idea of how we're going to be interpreting this thing uh, for the next year. There's a fancy word for that called hermeneutic, but now I'm just stalling. Hey, quick question. How are the Holocaust, slavery, and the Crusades all similar? I'll give you a minute. No, 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 no. This isn't a joke. This is an actual, I'm just going to smack you in the face with the fish of reality. What do they all have in common? Time's up. It is that they have all used the Bible to justify some pretty awful horrendous things because this is what people do they take the bible they take verses in scripture out of context and they they use it to justify their own horrible awful things and they have taken unto themselves the banner of the lord and broken every one of the commandments and that is uh in a word bad so the question becomes How do we get from taking the Bible and applying it to these awful, horrible things? Well, the answer is actually quite simple. People will take these verses and they will just run with it. They'll take what the pastor says and they'll accept it as truth. They'll take what whoever is in charge says and just believe it. But this is a really dangerous way to live our lives, especially if we believe in something called the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture is the idea that Scripture holds all we need to navigate our faith. It may not have every answer to life's problems, but it holds all of our hope, all of our joy, all of our peace within the understanding of its pages. So it becomes really difficult to live our lives against a solid, actual, objective truth if we take everything that another fallible human being is saying as truth. Essentially, we need to run what we're hearing up against the truth and validity of Scripture. If what we hear contradicts Scripture, then we need to go back and wrestle with these parts of the Bible that we haven't wrestled with yet. For example, when I was in college, I had a friend who was in a Bible study across town at the other university, and in their Bible study, the leader of their Bible study would claim that Jesus wasn't God, that he emptied himself of his divinity. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. How do you get from being a Christian to not believing in Jesus as deity? That's one of the foundational beliefs of the Christian faith. in the triune God, that God is three in one, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So how do you believe that Jesus emptied himself of his deity? Well, it's actually pretty simple and pretty common. If we go to Philippians 2, 6 through 8, we learn about something called the kenosis theory. Let's go there now. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says, Who, though he was in the form of God, speaking of Jesus, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, when we read this verse, it seems pretty logical to assume that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity. I mean, it says it right there in verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This is something called the kenosis theory, that Jesus, when he became human, emptied himself of all divinity. And thus, all of his miracles and outworkings was, were not because he was God in the flesh, but because he was a human being who was really obedient and serviceable to God. Thus, God blessed him and made him able to do all of these crazy things on earth. So let's back up and let's take stock of the whole book of Philippians for a second. Unfortunately, because this is a letter, um, we do have to look a little bit at the historical context and then we can go into the literary context. But the historical context, I think, is is really neat as well. Um, Philippi is a, a Roman colony at this time. I've actually been to Philippi and um, it's really beautiful. There's a, a quiet brook that runs at the base of this mountain where this city was built. And it's about a half day's walk from the Mediterranean Sea. Um, Paul actually goes there. Paul walks from the shore to Philippi on a second missionary journey. And so there's this really light sea breeze. When we went, it was really sunny and warm. I mean, it's Greece, so it tends to be pretty warm. Um, it's really beautiful. And, and at the time, it was occupied mostly by Roman soldiers. And so there are Gentile Christians in this area that are being persecuted for believing in in the Christ. They're being persecuted. They're being thrown in jail. Um, they're being harassed on the streets. And yet, we know from 2 Corinthians and Acts that the Philippians sent money to Paul while he was in prison. And this is Paul's response to the Philippians for such an incredible act of generosity. Um, the surrounding passages of this passage that we're looking at in Philippians 2, the surrounding passages are really vignettes about living out your faith and living out your faith well. Um, Paul talks about advancing the gospel and the faith that's found in humility and finding righteousness in Christ and striving for peace. These are all vignettes of, of how the Philippians can live out their faith in the midst of this persecution that they're facing in this Roman colony. This section that we find ourselves is what is called poetic narrative. Um, it's essentially a little tiny poem, and it's found in the very center of Philippians, which to a Jewish audience and would have been recognized by a Greek Gentile audience is uh, something called a chiasm, which is where it's like an ABBA structure that you had when you were in middle school English class. They're rhyming ideas, and the center of these ideas is always the most important. It's the central theme. It's something that we call the hinge passage of the whole book, something that the whole book is founded off of, that's based off of. And it just so happens that in Philippians, we find this beautiful poem about the deity of Christ and how he um, humbled himself to 
becoming a human being. So when it says Jesus did not grasp, I want to focus on that passage or that phrase just a little bit, did not grasp. This is a common Jewish phrase that you actually see all throughout the scriptures. And what it is, is an echoing of the garden narrative. He did not grasp equality with God, something he didn't, he didn't grasp it, which is the opposite of what Adam did. Adam did count equality with God, something to be literally grasped. He he grasped the fruit, he held on to the fruit, and, and that was his way of, of claiming, claiming equality with God, claiming deity. And what Paul is, is claiming that Jesus is a second Adam, a better Adam, and that he did not count equality with God, something to be grasped like Adam did. In fact, he decided to to humble himself by coming under the will of God, as we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, Jesus did not grasp equality. That's what that phrase means. And I'm fairly certain that what it's saying is he did not relinquish his divinity, but rather he added on to himself the humility of being a human being. And I think that we see that all throughout the book of Philippians in its historical context, because the Philippians are being persecuted and they need something to hold on to. And Paul is saying, act humbly in your faith towards the people who are persecuting you, just like Jesus did when he he acted humbly by taking on himself the will of God by becoming a servant, taking on human form and serving other people. I mean, this is in essence another to live as Christ, to die as game line by Paul, because what he's saying is that to live in the kingdom of God, which is to be truly human, then we are living lives of humility. Just Look up at the verse literally right before it, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This passage is a passage about the beauty that comes when we humble ourselves. We enter into the same space that the Christ entered into, and that is not a humble state of being. When we live out our faith, which is to say when we count others as more than ourselves, we're living out the most exalted state of being. This has almost next to nothing to do with Christ being God or not, though it is incredibly powerful that a human being would even be able to write that God humbled himself at all, but to humble himself to the point of being a human for the sole purpose of being humbled even further to death, to being humbled the furthest you could go, which is death on a cross. But Paul is claiming that this humility, this death on the cross, is actually the exaltation of Jesus because it was Jesus's enthronement to being king. It was his way of conquering death and thus being the most exalted being you could possibly be because you conquered death. No other human has ever conquered death. That is the only inevitable reality in our world, the death and taxes, as they say. And not only did you conquer death for yourself, but through Jesus, death was conquered for all who believe in him. And more than that, if we continue on, if we are truly living out our faith, the motivation behind that is because it is the exaltation of our King, of Jesus, of God, to the earth. Paul is asking these Philippians to recognize God is worthy of our lives being lived out in such a way that it exalts him to all the earth. So, you see, with a little TLC, with a little tender love and care, this verse not only is reoriented so that it doesn't 
contradict the whole purpose of the Bible, but it becomes so much more beautiful and multi-layered. And we can begin to see how Paul wants us to apply this to our life. You know, another verse I've heard often taken out of context that then becomes a major contradiction is James 1.13. Let's go there for a second. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So, as we can see, James 1.13 is an apparent contradiction that denies the desert temptation of Jesus. So, myself and Philip have both heard people use this verse to say that Jesus can't be God because he was tempted in the desert, and James 1.13 clearly says that God can't be tempted. And at first glance, I mean, that's totally fair. James in and of itself is a really complicated book to understand, and we kind of have to knead that out a little bit to understand what James is really getting at right here at the beginning of his letter. James is written to followers of Jesus. That is a crucial aspect to take into account here. He's writing to people who are already Christians, and he's he's showing them how to live really Christ-like lives. And what else is this echoing other than the kingdom values that are outlined in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. James's letter is also really proverbial. Not only is it echoing the Sermon on the Mount and the kingdom values, but it's really proverbial in the sense that not everything James is saying is a promise directly from God. It's a proverb that if you live like this, life might go well for you. But it might not. It's not a promise. It's a proverb. Moreover, another important note to point out is the literal word being used here. I, I mean, we often think of the word tempt as to mean to solicit evil, but the actual word here is epirastos in the Greek, which I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right because I am not a native Greek speaker, but it's the best I can do from reading the transliteration apirastos, which is an adjective to describe a subject. So the word literally means without or untried by the subject, which in this case is evil. So God is without evil. And that works quite a bit better, but it still does kind of pose our desert temptation contradiction. Wasn't God tried by evil then? Well, it might be better to translate this to say God is not enticed by evil, or that God does not entice people to commit evil. The reason being, where does the temptation come from? For us, the temptation comes from within, for human beings, that is. But for Jesus, the temptation came from outside of himself, from the Satan. Now, this may seem small, and we may be reading too much into it, but I really think that this is hitting home James's point altogether far more than an apparent contradiction. I'm pretty sure the idea here is that it is our sin nature, it is human beings that are the evil ones, that temptation, that sin, comes from within us, not from without us. Which, by the way, is the very good news of Jesus Christ. Because if what James is asserting here is true, that evil comes from within us, then we can do nothing about the evil that we put out into the world. Because if evil comes from within us, and we are tempted and enticed by our own desires, then that means that we live in a state of being that is fallen. 
sin no longer becomes an action that we commit, but rather a state of being that we live in. And I think the rest of the scriptures support this idea very well. This would not be good news at all if Jesus didn't come to earth to take onto himself that fallen state of being. But he did. And he says that for those who put their trust in him will be forgiven. That they will no longer live in this fallen state of being, but positionally, in the eyes of God, they will be reconciled, made new, made clean, made whole. That is very, very good news. And what James is saying is that Jesus reconciled us to God even while we were stuck in this sinful state. So how worthy is God of our obedience? And that, I think, sums up the James passage way more sufficiently than just saying, oh well, the Bible contradicts itself and therefore it can't be true. You know, I think it takes a little bit more effort, a little bit more elbow grease on our part to come to a fuller understanding of these passages. But I think at the end, when we put in the effort, we see this whole universe that waits for us there. I am also glad we did this interpretation episode with the epistles because I think the epistles are some of the hardest books of the Bible to contextualize along with the Old Testament prophets because the epistles are like literal letters. I I mean, more like half essays, half letters, but they were written to a specific audience that was going through a very specific thing and they address that thing, that one thing. So we can't go through and cherry pick our favorite verses because if we don't know what the letter is addressing, then we don't know what the verse is talking about. And that historically has not gone well for the church or for the people of God. But once we understand the intent of the whole book and we understand the historical context that it was written in and we orient ourselves within that story, then we can look at these verses and begin to make sense of them. But only then can we start to do that. Well, that will just about cut it. I am really glad that we were able to go on this interpretive adventure together. I hope we can continue exploring the universe of Scripture together. Be sure to be on the lookout for the next couple of episodes where we will go over some larger swaths of the Bible before we actually get into our uh, first season. We'll be covering what the Old and New Testaments are and what they mean for us and how, as believers, we can best read those parts of the Bible. Then we will do a special Christmas episode because that will set us up really nicely for our first season. The Messiah, the man, the snake crusher, the person coming to save us. I I, I don't know. If you have a small group or a Bible study or are planning to do a Bible in the Year plan, Bible Unbound would be a great resource for you to utilize because it will give you the tools to make it through Leviticus and interpret the Bible, uh, at least we think, well. So thanks so much. This was Bible Unbound, and we'll see you next week.